Welcome to Decoding Healthcare Research, a podcast by Agora Project. Join us as we delve into the behind-the-scenes world of groundbreaking research and the dynamic healthcare industry, interviewing top paper authors, engaging experts on industry-related topics, and exploring medical subjects that affect our daily lives. And now, your host, Dr. E.F. Rain. Welcome to Decoding Healthcare Research. I'm your host, Efrain Riveros, Dr. E.F. Rain. Today, we will be talking about ketogenic diet and also Alzheimer's disease and the connection between the two. We came across a very important and thorough paper that is actually tackling this problem. And uh, it was published in the Journal of Nutritional Health and Aging in 2022. And we have here the authors. We have uh, Haley Hersant, she's an MD candidate. And also we have Dr. George Grossberg, who will join us shortly. Both of them are researchers of the Department of Psychiatry at the St. Louis University School of Medicine. Welcome, Haley. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. So uh, it's not a secret that uh, Alzheimer's disease is, is, um, is, a, is an illness that is affecting more and more people worldwide. It is estimated that approximately 50 million people are affected at the time and uh, uh, the number of people at high risk for developing this disorder is even higher. So uh, when I came across your paper, uh, I was captivated by the, the depth of the, of the review that you guys uh, did. And uh, my, fir- my first question to you is, what was the motivation for you to, to start uh, digging deeper into this particular aspect? Yeah, I think our motivation is that you know, nutrition is such, you know, a wide um, concept, and we're interested in how nutrition can play a role in psychiatry, and especially for our elderly patients and those with concerns of, you know, memory and um, dementia, and are there any types of lifestyle interventions, including diet, on how we can prevent or treat these illnesses? Uh, for you guys, what was the biggest challenge in trying to find uh, literature of value? Is it easy to find strong studies in the literature or you had to to go to different databases? How was the process? It was sometimes difficult to find strong studies. I think there are a few strong studies out there. However, I think one of the major issues is that they may not include a large number of patients or they the time period of the study is not very long. And I think that the major issue with the time period is that it's hard to um, keep participants on a diet for a very long period of time, especially something such as a ketogenic diet, which can be pretty restrictive and very different than what most Americans or Westerners are consuming in their daily diet. So let's uh, talk about the ketogenic diet first. So uh, what does it consist of? So the ketogenic diet um, mostly consists of majority of the calories coming from fat, whereas, and then lower percentage coming from protein or carbohydrates, whereas more of a typical Westerner diet consists of around at least 50% from carbohydrates and then higher percentages from fat and protein. And in terms of specific foods, that's kind of one of the points that I address in the paper is that ketogenic diet is really defined by the composition of carbohydrates, proteins, and fats in the diet, but really you can make up the specific diet with whatever foods you want. 
and you know you can choose to consume mostly you know meats and um, fats such as butter and cheese whereas you could also choose to consume you know meats um, such as fish or lower fat meats and olive oils nuts so you could really vary the type of specific composition of the diet Thank you, Haley. Um, let me let me uh, welcome Dr. Grosberg. How are you, Dr. Grosberg? Thank you for joining us. Thank you. I, I've been better. Had a little difficulty getting on, but I'm here. I actually have been listening to you and listening to Haley, who's done a fantastic job in describing what motivated us to kind of look into this topic and what we found. Absolutely. So let's let's continue. So my my next question is let's illustrate a little bit uh, the connection between Alzheimer's disease and, and ketogenic diet. What is, the, what is the biological mechanism behind it? Well, maybe I can talk a little bit about that and we'll let Haley, you've, you've carried the heavy load so far. Uh, so there are a number of changes that occur uh, in the brain, uh, metabolic changes in Alzheimer's disease. Uh, one of the changes that occurs is basically uh, deficiencies in glucose and glucose metabolism, particularly in the parts of the brain that are most affected by this degenerative brain disease. And I think as um, we know, uh, glucose is kind of the fuel for, for neurons. So the question then becomes, is there something that we can use that may be a substitute fuel uh, for the neurons in a situation, in a scenario where we, may not, where we may not have adequate amounts of glucose. Uh, and that's where the free fatty acids come in. So the free fatty acids, which are generated through ketogenesis, and there are different ways of doing that. One of them is a ketogenic diet. Another is to add free fatty acids or medium chain triglycerides that are uh, metabolized to free fatty acids. Those can serve as an alternate source of fuel for neurons. So that's the theoretical mechanism by which uh, increasing ketones and ketones in the body or through diet, uh, increasing free fatty acids, which serve as fuel, might help cognitively in Alzheimer's disease. The advocates of a ketogenic diet focus a lot on the low content of carbohydrate and, and as you mentioned, the, the beneficial effect of uh, limiting the, the supply of glucose. To the brain and replacing it with the uh, with the ketone bodies, specifically hydroxybutyrate and uh, acetoacetate, and yeah, exactly. So the um, the, the but on the other hand, uh, some people say that the side effects are also important. What can you guys say about that? Yeah, Lee, do you want to start? Yeah. So specifically, I mean, from consuming a ketogenic diet itself. Um, and even the exogenous ketone supplementation, many patients experience um, GI side effects such as an upset stomach. And there's also from consuming an, a whole ketogenic diet, there's a term called the, the keto flu, which is also includes like upset stomach um, and just general symptoms of the flu. People might feel sweaty or shaky. So those are some of the major side effects. And, uh, yeah, go ahead. Dr. I was just going to add to that, that uh, there is a product, and it's mentioned in the paper, but there is a product that's available in the United States, which is classified as a medical food. 
which is basically medium chain triglycerides. And then those are converted to ketone bodies. It's a uh, like a milkshake-like product. It's a powder that you constitute with water. And we've actually used it some in our clinic. The problem is at the therapeutic doses that are recommended, patients invariably develop not only uh, upset stomach and nausea, but really very painful gas, increased intestinal gas. And that limits at least the external uh, provision of these medium train chain triglycerides. And as Haley mentioned, those that are on the ketogenic diet not only have this keto flu with flu-like symptoms, but there's a lot of controversy about what happens to particularly LDL, uh, what happens to bad cholesterol, which we want to keep low. Often we see elevated levels of uh, um, of LDL, uh, low-density lipoproteins, which are a significant cardiovascular risk factor. Uh, so we have to be cautious in that regard as well. So are those changes uh, transient? So for someone who starts on a ketogenic diet, would you expect those changes in LDL to tend to go back to normal over time, or is that something that is progressive? I'm not sure we have long-term enough data. I think that's a great question. Okay, we know what happens in this limitation. I think, Haley, you mentioned or alluded to it a little bit in the beginning, which I heard. The limitation that we have as far as studies, uh, whether with the ketogenic diet or providing these substances externally, is the studies generally are small numbers of patients and they're short. So we don't have, you know, five-year, 10-year, much less one- or two-year studies to know whether there are cumulative side effects or whether some of the risks and side effects kind of temper or attenuate over time. This is what's sorely needed are large, placebo-controlled, long-term studies to determine safety, tolerability, and potentially efficacy. So when you compare ketogenic diet in their different modalities and uh, substitutes like uh, medium-chain triglycerides, are they equally effective for in terms of Alzheimer's effects? I mean, they should be. Uh, again, there haven't been, as far as I know, Haley, you might have seen something different, but there haven't been any head-to-head comparisons. But we've generally thought about the two ways of increasing keto bodies as either you know, the diet or bringing it in as, a, as an um, additive or as a supplement. Yeah. And, and our... And change triglycerides. Yeah. Yeah. In our paper, um, we did have a section that just focused on consuming a ketogenic diet and some of those studies had benefits. And then there were also studies that separately just looked at the use of the medium chain triglycerides and those had benefits as well. However, um, yeah, like Dr. Grossberg said, there haven't been any studies that are specifically having patients comparing both of them. And I think one of the other points of the paper is that with the medium chain triglycerides, it's easier for patients to use this method because they can consume a regular diet and then supplement with these medium chain triglycerides. And that's a lot easier for patients, especially elderly patients to follow rather than having to follow this rigorous ketogenic diet, which many patients, you know, often don't want to consume because it's. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. I think you also pointed out, Haley, paper 
so that it's also easier for the care partners. You know, it's one thing to give a supplement every day. It's another to strictly monitor a diet, which the patient may not even understand, you know, why they can't eat a lot of their favorite foods. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you mentioned in your paper as well that ketogenic diet is probably just one aspect of a multifaceted approach to patients uh, with the, with Alzheimer's disease. So what other uh, supplements, what other um, strategies uh, may play a significant role here? I think there's several different approaches and we also kind of investigated some of these in the paper, including physical activity, some type of mental stimulation or mind training, social interaction was a major one, um, as well as for some patients, there may be, if they're a spiritual person, engaging in that too can help provide a component of social interaction as well. Yeah, and I think just to add to that, Haley, and that's something we recommend for all of our patients. These are the areas that we focus on, as well as at-risk family members. And then because we're focusing on diet today, the best evidence that we have to date, and a lot of that is coming from the study uh, that I think you detailed very nicely in the paper, the finger study, the Finnish study, the two-year study that combined not all these lifestyle, not just these lifestyle modification approaches, uh, which include modifying or treating any and all cardiovascular risk factors, but also the diet. And the diet that has the best data, the largest numbers, longest amount of time behind it is a form of the Mediterranean diet, which is called the MIND diet. The MIND diet is what we're really recommending most because it's relatively easy to follow. The Mediterranean diet with low sodium, that's the MIND diet. So again, everybody gets way too much sodium. We know that blood pressure and hypertension are major risk factors for not just strokes and heart attacks, but even for various dementing disorders, including Alzheimer's disease. So we combine that with the Mediterranean diet, which is you know very rich in fruits and vegetables and whole grains, uh, oily fish, which is where you get the omega-3s, uh, not much in the way of red meat or um, uh, things of that nature uh, or processed foods. So we combine the diet with the other approaches And that's what that famous finger study did and showed that even in individuals that already have the beginnings of cognitive impairment, even in individuals who have vascular risk factors, even in individuals that may have a family history, that you see positive outcomes cognitively at the end of two years. And that's pretty impressive. So that's what we're really espousing for all of our patients now, uh, as well as their at-risk family members. Yeah, and this is actually fascinating. And if you combine it with all the other strategies, uh, probably the outcome is going to be even better. One of those outcomes that uh, that I I have been intrigued intrigued about is weight loss. So nowadays, most people uh, in different age groups are using the ketogenic diet to lose weight, and that in itself is a positive outcome. My question is, for patients with the uh, instituted Alzheimer's disease, is this something desirable or is actually a side effect? <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you, we have this discussion. It's another great question. I have this discussion almost every day in clinic with patients and families, particularly with patients that have what I call 
a few extra pounds on board. What I tell them is, is that there's growing evidence as people get into their later years, their 60s, their 70s, and their 80s, later more so, that it's actually a plus, a benefit to have a few extra pounds on board versus being thin and cachectic. Because when patients are thin and they can become cachectic, they also become often immune compromised. Now, when we say a few extra pounds, we're not talking about 100 extra pounds, of course, because that's a major risk factor. But we like it when individuals are either normal weight for their height and, and their, and their uh, body habitus or maybe have a few extra pounds on board. That can actually be a plus. I had a patient today, for example, who's like six feet four. He's a tall, lanky gentleman with Alzheimer's disease. And he weighs only 130 pounds. He lost 15 pounds in the last month. And I'm worried about him because he's so thin that he's weaker and his immune system might be compromised. So we really need to pump him up with high protein supplements and try to get him to gain weight. So often with Alzheimer's disease, the disease itself can cause weight loss. So our challenge is to counteract that, to get patients to be able to maintain or to gain weight because then they're stronger, their immune system is stronger. So that can be a desirable outcome. Yeah, and I think, in fact, one of the risk factors for Alzheimer's disease has been found to be midlife obesity rather than later life, because I think, you know, a lot of the pathogenesis is happening when patients, it starts when they're younger. And then, you know, once patients are older, obviously we don't want them to be very overweight, but like Dr. Grossberg said, it's a it's okay if they're, you know, a fewer pounds overweight. Maybe 10%. What happens also, Haley, as you're pointing out, is that those individuals that are significantly, grossly overweight in the middle years, they're not going to make it into their 80s to develop Alzheimer's disease, unfortunately. You know, it's sad, but they're going to succumb to heart attacks and other kind of vascular kind of insults. So uh, we're talking strictly about the later years. Yeah, and that's, that's pretty interesting. Actually, in my clinical practice, what I have noticed is that uh, the elderly population, that the surgical elderly population that I take care of, it's very unusual that you see obese patients in the 80s or 90s. Apparently, they don't even make it to those yeah, years. Truly obese, it's rare. It's rare. Yeah, that's that's true. Uh, Haley, after your thorough review, what, what do you think are the knowledge gaps and uh, what should the future research focus on? I think the future research should focus on ways that this could sustainably be implemented because even if the research shows that a ketogenic diet is, you know, can prevent or treat Alzheimer's disease, I think it's still going to be very difficult for patients or anyone to adhere to this because it's, you know, a difficult diet to sometimes follow. And I think other gaps specifically that I've noticed is they're finding that um, the microbiome is a new area that has a lot of interest. And they're finding that people with Alzheimer's disease have different composition of the populations of microbiota in their gut. So I think continuing to further look into this and to see how how diet affects the microbiome, because I've definitely seen there um, have been a study that found that the modified Mediterranean ketogenic diet, which is 
similar to what Dr. Grossberg was talking about in that it's a Mediterranean diet, but then it actually follows a ketogenic diet in that in terms of the composition of high fats as opposed to carbs. And the study showed that those um, who were following this medit modified Mediterranean ketogenic diet had an improved composition of their microbiome compared to those that were following um, the American Heart Association diet. And their microbiome specifically had higher levels of anti-inflammatory species of microbiome. So I think this will be a major impact or issue to look into in the future. Yeah, I think that's a great point, uh, Haley. Uh, the whole area of the microbiome is an area that most clinicians uh, either don't know much about and definitely don't pay much attention to. But I want to go back to something even, I think, more basic and more important as far as a knowledge gap relative to training of physicians. Uh, I first met Haley when she was a first-year medical student at St. Louis University, and she had started they asked me to talk to this club that she started and it was called the culinary club and i'm thinking to myself oh well they probably want to know what my favorite restaurants are and you know where to get a good hamburger or st louis but it had nothing to do with that it really had to do with her recognition and it's to your credit that you recognize that so early and the club became very popular that there isn't enough training for physicians in medical school relative to nutrition about what are healthy foods and what are foods to avoid? Uh, what do we recommend uh, as far as what kinds of foods might be good for brain health? You know, not even talking yet about the microbiome, which is kind of a more recent area of, of uh, knowledge, although potentially very, very important. And we talk about prebiotics, which are foods that one can consume, like cultured Greek yogurt and kimchi fermented foods that can alter the microbiota and introduce more healthy bacteria into the gut, which can have an effect on the brain and so on. But again, I think this whole area of nutrition, knowing about vitamins, about supplements, what are what are healthy foods, what are foods to avoid, what are the different diets, it's just not taught much in medical school. And that was the reason that Haley started the club, <laughs> not to find good restaurants, but to educate and to bring in speakers to talk more about the role of dietary uh, kind of supplements and uh, vitamins and nutrition and the relationship between that and good health, brain health and general health. And it's true in terms of uh, public health, uh, the non-pharmacological measures can be as or more effective than pharmacological treatments. And that's particularly true in Alzheimer's where pharmacological treatment and uh, research ha you know, have failed. Uh, for the most part. So, and uh, finding, and that was the reason why we, we came across the paper, is because we are really interested in, in, in spreading the word that you can uh, actually affect change by relatively, not small changes, but uh, doable changes that you can incorporate into your daily routines, one of them being the diet. And, exactly. and I think I found high value in, in this review um, actually, I, I went through a lot of papers and I would say that uh, your review is one of the, the most detailed and uh, included really uh, studies from, from all over the, the place and uh, the conclusions that you came out with are, are definitely strong. And, um, and uh, I want to congratulate you guys for, for this publication. Uh, Haley deserves well. all credit. It's a great paper. 
it's a great paper. Yeah, and I think it is. It's making an impact. The fact that you know you have us on and you read it and you felt it was impactful, and we can hopefully impact other clinicians. That means so much. That's true, and this is. And actually, I was uh, talking to to Haley offline that uh, one of the goals of this podcast is actually to, to spread the word and to, to make this knowledge available, not only to the medical population, but the general uh, public as well. So that's, that's great. Uh, and, um, and I think uh, that brings us to, to a close in our conversation. And I want to thank you both for, for taking the time to share your knowledge with, with us today. Uh, and uh, for our audience, uh, you will find the link to the paper in the description. And don't forget to leave us the feedback. Uh, thank you so much and see you in the next episode. Great. Thank, thank you. you. That's great. Thank you. thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. If you enjoyed it, please don't forget to give us a thumbs up and share it with your friends and family. Make sure to subscribe to our channel and hit that notification bell so you never miss an episode. If you have any questions or thoughts about today's topic, we'd love to hear from you. Feel free to leave your comments down below. For more information and references related to today's discussion, you can find them in the video description below. We appreciate your support and look forward to having you back for our next episode.